It was just a few weeks ago. We gathered in this place and we proclaimed that he is risen. And you responded with he is risen indeed. And so what this series is asking you is how serious are you about the indeed of that? Because there are people, they, they do this, this thing in theology called apologetics where they line up the evidence for the resurrection. And they line up the eyewitnesses, the witness accounts, and you can build a very strong case for the, the historicity, for the, the fact that the resurrection was an event. It happened in time. You can build a case for that. And then you can make a leap of faith. We, we can make a leap of faith to say, I believe the tomb is empty. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. You can make that cognitive belief in your head. But what we're asking you to think about over these last few weeks and today is, well, what does it mean to believe that? If I've made that cognitive belief, if I've made that leap of faith to say Jesus rose from the dead, how does that change my five-year plan? How does that inform what I'm going to do the next three years from now? How does that transform what I'm going to do tomorrow? What difference does it make in my life? Do I really believe it indeed, indeed enough that it changes my life? And, and this is important for us because Jesus said, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, anyone who would be my disciple must take up his or her cross daily. Daily, we are asking ourselves, what does it mean to believe in the resurrection? How am I closer to Jesus today than I was yesterday? And the letters of Paul, they're so helpful for us. Remember, Paul's writing to a group of people who've made this cognitive belief. They've professed faith in Christ, and now it's 20 years after the resurrection. And they're trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in this time, in this place? What is it God's called us to do? Who has he called us to be? And Philippians chapter 2, it begins with what's known as the Christ hymn. And we've visited that over the few, these last few weeks. But it is this very succinct picture, this statement of faith. It characterizes Christ's downward mobility. We always talk about upward mobility, but the gospel is a message of downward mobility, where Jesus, he left heaven, he became flesh, he walked on our earth, he died a death, not just any death, but death on a cross. He emptied himself of power, and because of that, God raised him up, and because Christ has conquered the grave, we too will, we too will conquer the grave. Christ's victory is our victory, and that's the good news. And we, saw, we all say amen to that. But so what? So that's our belief. So that's what we believe Jesus did. What difference does it make? The very next verse, like after Paul paints this picture of Christ's downward mobility, he captures the gospel in these 11 verses. The next verse is, therefore, verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We're going to talk today about a classic tension of the Christian faith. This passage where Paul calls us to work out our salvation. And just as a personal note, Lauren's heard me preach this passage hundreds of times. Well, not hundreds of times, but a lot. And I can't help but when I say work out your salvation, I have to do that with my hands, okay? 
So just be prepared for that. You're going to see that a lot. I'm not dancing. I promise you, that's not what I do. But um, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. It's a classic tension that we have here. And Paul's encouraging the Philippians to be proactive and participatory in what God is doing in their lives. Salvation is given to us by grace, but Paul is saying as humans created in the image of God with the capacity to respond to grace, we now must cooperate with what God is doing in salvation. And you would commonly say or you would commonly call this this act of humans to cooperate with God and working out their salvation, you would commonly call that works or Another way of describing this human capacity is spiritual disciplines. And our theological ancestor, his name was John Wesley, he would call them means of grace. These disciplines, these things we do, these spiritual practices, they are not salvific in and of themselves. They are not the salvation that we have received. But they are a practice, they are a means of experiencing grace and encountering what God has done for us. And so in this phrase, Paul says, work out, which is works, but then he says, your salvation. And that is referring to the grace of God that enables us to be saved, that enables us to be in relationship with, with God. It is by grace that you are saved, he says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And so the implication is clear that salvation is a gift that is fully from God. It's made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's given to us through the Holy Spirit. We can't earn it. It's by grace, but we receive it as a gift. And so that's the tension. On the one hand, you have grace, which we're going to define today as the unmerited favor of God through which we receive salvation. This is amazing grace. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. This is what the cross was all about, so that we might have complete access to the grace and the mercy of God, the unmerited favor of God through which we receive salvation. But I reference that Ephesians 2 passage, and right after Paul says it's by grace you're saved, not by works, he goes on to say, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in the image of God, God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. To do good works. And so Christians live in this tension of grace and works. And I'm going to define works today as the internal and the external practices of the Christian faith that form us to be more like Jesus. These practices, they are internal and they are external, and they form us to be more like Jesus. Now, we're going to unpack that a little bit in just a moment, but I want to tell you again about my friend Todd. Now, some of you were here a few weeks ago. I told you the story. Several years ago, Todd was searching Todd was trying to find answers to life, and he was trying to put a Christian worldview in the context of all the other worldviews that he had studied in his life. And he'd studied all kinds of isms. There's a lot of isms out there. And he said, I'm going to give Christianity a shot. And so he plugged into a local church, not this local church, but he plugged into one for about eight weeks. 
Todd and I got to know one another. He said, hey, I want to take you to lunch. I've got, I want to talk to you about something. He tells me his journey. He's been exploring the Christian faith. And he says, hey, dude, I've been going to this church for eight weeks. I just want you to know I get it. I'm like, what is it that you get? It's like Christianity. Like, I get it. Like, like you, you, you put your faith in Jesus, and you, you believe in Jesus, and then you get to go to heaven when you die. Like, that's all I've heard for the last eight weeks at this church. And like, man, I got it like the first two weeks. And I'm just saying, like, I get it. And if that's all there is to it, then I just, I don't know if that's for me because I just want to do more with my life than sit around and wait on Jesus to return or wait, wait to die. There's got to be something more to it than this. And I said, oh man, you got to know. There's way more to it than this. There's way more to it than this. God says we, he wants us to be in relationship with him he forgives us of our sins and transforms us so that we can participate in God's good purpose and what God wants to do in the world. And friend, every day following Jesus is a day to understand more of God's love, the height, the depth, the breadth, the length, all of it. Every day we, we, we encounter more and more of it. And, it, and if you're telling me that the the forgiveness of your sins is something that you get, you understand. I don't think you do. I don't think you understand what Jesus has done for you and the love that sent him to the cross and the grace that is now ours and how much that costs God. And in response to that, we share that with others and we live transformed lives in the world. It's, it's high and deep and wide and broad and, and, and th this love of God he's poured into our lives. And I think, friends, if we ever get to a point where we say, man, I get it, then you don't really have it. Because as we, as we live in this tension of grace received and works in response to grace, our life becomes more aware, more aware of, of, of just how high and deep and, and broad is the love of God that he's poured into our lives. And so let's talk about the works. Let's talk, as Paul says, work out your salvation. What are these works that he's talking about? The internal things are sort of simple to define. We talk about scripture reading and prayer and, and attending to the gathering of the people of God. You're here today. This is a practice. This draws you closer to Jesus. And since I've already mentioned him, our theological ancestor, John Wesley, he called these works of piety these internal works, these things that make us more aware of God's grace in our lives. But then he also talked about works of mercy. And he encouraged those early Methodist followers. He said, you need to visit the sick. And you need to visit those that are in prison. And you need to be aware of what's going on in your world. Because the tomb is empty, you should be transformed, and your transformed life in society should transform society. And you need to speak out against injustice. If you've been given a platform to, to help people experience more of the purpose for which they were created and to help humanity thrive in God's image, you need to use that platform and engage in advocacy and works of mercy. In fact, at the time when the Wesley Revival was sweeping Great Britain, the British Empire uh, practiced slavery. 
It's a legalized practice throughout the British Empire. And it was the Methodists who were standing in the public space and they were saying slavery is an abomination to God. It dehumanizes people. It's wrong. We need to abolish it. We don't care how much it's going to cost the East India Trading Company. It needs to be abolished. And, and they were the advocates of this. And the person who had the platform to, to ultimately see that slavery was abolished in the British Empire was a guy named William Wilberforce, who was deeply informed by John Wesley and the Methodists. And on John Wesley's deathbed, he had a conversation with Wilberforce and encouraged him to continue to use his voice in Parliament to see that slavery was banned throughout the British Empire. Wesley never saw that moment. He died in 1791. And it was later in the 1800s when Wilberforce finally got Parliament to abolish slavery throughout the British Empire. But that was a work of mercy that came out of who these people understood themselves to be in Christ. And so what you need to know about the people of God, you know, sometimes you see the people of God standing in public spaces. And sometimes you see the people of God saying things that make you uncomfortable when there's injustice in our world. And as a preacher, I've been told by people before to stay in my lane and to not be in these spaces. And I just want to tell you, this has been our lane for quite some time. The people of God need, they have to be, they're called to be in this lane and to speak up against injustice and to cast a full vision of what the world and society should look like under the reign of God. That's working out our salvation. And that's not just a call of preachers. That's your call as well, to work out your salvation. What does it look like for you to work out your salvation in a world that's characterized by injustice? And so, works of piety and works of mercy. These things, um, they, they come together as we work out our salvation. And they're held in tension with each other. You have grace on the one hand and works on the other. And throughout Scripture, those things are held in a very delicate tension. And so I want to sort of illustrate what that looks like. Um, and I'm going to ask my son Paul to come up here. And uh, I asked Paul because uh, I can make him do these things. And so um, Paul's going to come on up here and we're going to illustrate the tension the classic tension of the Christian life between works and grace. So, Paul, I want you to take the yellow end of the rope, and that represents grace. Okay, you're going to be grace in this illustration. And then I'm going to take the pink end of the rope, and I'm going to be works. Okay, so what Scripture envisions is the Christian living in a very um, healthy tension. So just pull on out a little bit, Paul. We've got that in a very healthy tension. Um, this is similar to how the, the belts in your car, they turn certain rotors and certain... I, I, I'm talking about cars. I should not talk about cars. But I know there's belts under the engine, and they're connected to these circular things, and these circular things turn other things in your car, and they make your car go. And it might as well be black magic to me, because I don't know what's going on underneath the car. But I know a belt intention is involved in some way. And so we've got this in a good tension. And in the Christian life, 
Grace always leads. It's always God initiating. It's always God initiating what he wants to do in our life. And so, Paul, I want you to walk around the stage. You're leading, and I'm following you with my works. And, and we're keeping this in, in proper tension. And so as you lead, we're going to keep our life in proper tension with grace and works. Man, but, you know, sometimes our works run out ahead of grace, and we get out of tension, and grace is pulling us one way, and we're pulling the other, and that's usually not good. But now, God is not going to, God is not going to, um, sometimes we can, we can pull against grace and go in ways that uh, we shouldn't go. And so it's important that, that people pull us back. And so we pull back, and, you know, sometimes God calls us to stop, right? Calls us to stop, but we just keep on going. Now we're out of tension. We're working things, and God's just, you know, we got we to make sure we keep the proper tension. What about when we don't want to go? God's leading us a certain place, and we resist. You know, God will keep pulling. God's going to keep pulling, but he's not going to overpower us. He's calling us to cooperate with the grace that he pours into our lives. And at some point, we have to stop resisting and we have to go with God and keep our life in, in proper tension. Works and grace, they go together. Hey, thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. I, I owe you $5. No, it's five for the whole Sunday. It's not five per service, okay? <laughs> Just want to get that clear. But do you see that dynamic, friends? Works and grace in their proper tension should characterize the Christian life. And working that out, Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That process is our sanctification. That process of, of determining that balance and determining how that tension is kept in our life, that is the process of our sanctification. And a huge step in sanctification is, is being in communication with the Spirit and, and learning to live in this dynamic and learning to follow the ways of the Spirit and make sure that our works follow grace that is poured into our lives and making sure our works don't get ahead of the grace in our lives and making sure that our disobedience doesn't resist the grace in our lives. And I just thought about three ways that God pours into our life and how we are called to then work out what he has poured in. There's three areas that I just want to highlight, and this is not exhaustive, but maybe you'll connect with some of this. God calls us to work out in the world what he has worked in. And I want us to think about this call of forgiveness. When God works in his forgiveness, we are called to work out forgiving others. How many of you, as you think about the tension in your life, as you think about grace that you've received, the forgiveness that you've received, and the complementary response of your life to extend forgiveness to others, what does that balance look like? What does that tension look like? Are you extending forgiveness as you have been forgiven? The only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus chose to elaborate on was forgiveness. Verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. There are probably people in our life right now that have wronged us. 
They've said something they shouldn't have said. They posted something they shouldn't have posted. They threw us under the bus. They didn't hold up their end of the bargain. There's probably people in our life right now that we have wronged. And as we think about our call to work out what God has worked in, the first thing we need to think about is not what they have done to us, but what has God done for us. God has forgiven us. God has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. That is an act of grace, unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. And then he calls us to receive that divine grace and forgive those who have wronged us. How many of you would say that working out your salvation is forgiving someone? How many of you would say working out your salvation is is extending an olive branch to someone who's wronged you? And most likely, the people that have wronged you, the people that you need to forgive or there's some unresolved issue with, most likely it's the people closest to you. It's your family. It's people that you share the last name with. It's people you share share genetic material with. It's people you might share a bank account with. I mean, you are intimate and close at a lot of different levels. And the closer we are with people, the more vulnerable, vulnerable we are with people, and the more opportunity for them to wrong us. And what if God is saying, hey, you need to work out your salvation today. You need to work out what I've worked in. And I've forgiven you. And I've cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. And I need you to be the first person to initiate the restoration of this relationship. And it looks like forgiveness. How many people around you are sad? They're discouraged. We've been living in isolation in different ways. We can't see each other's faces. We're wearing masks. Man, the last 12, 14 months has just been weird. A lot of different ways. Mental health professionals are are talking to us about deaths of despair. They're talking to us about the crisis of mental health. And there are so many people who are discouraged in the world. And you know, when God works in his hope, man, we are called to work out bringing hope to the discouraged. How many of you have been encouraged? You've been strengthened by God. God has lifted you up during this time. He's he's taken you from a place of of shifting sand and he's put you on a solid rock and, and you've weathered the storm and you have a great outlook. You have hope. You're excited about tomorrow. You just need to know that not everybody in your sphere of influence is feeling that. Most likely someone around you is discouraged. They're down. They're down they're downcast. And here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, verse verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Did you catch that? Look Look at the grace God is working into your life. You've been down, and he's comforted you. You've been discouraged, and he's comforted you. What does Paul say about that comfort that we receive, that hope that we receive in Christ? We receive it so that we can comfort others in their affliction and in their trouble. You need to know something about this season that we're living in. People are looking for answers. 
They are asking questions they've never asked before. And maybe you're here today because you are asking questions. You're seeking answers. And I, I met someone just yesterday. I was at this little golf course that I go to and and uh, I ended up meeting up with this person, and, and that's pretty common. People are out, there's a lot of singles out there, um, golf singles, that is. And, and so sometimes, you know, it gets crowded, and so you, you pair up with other people. And so we're playing a few holes of golf. And um, he eventually learned that, that I was a pastor, and, and so he apologized for his language. And, and I said, hey, I said, hey, man, golf is a four-letter word. Like, I get it. Like, you don't have to apologize to me. I mean, it's nothing I haven't heard before. I mean, have you been to a church board meeting before? Let me tell you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But so he finds out that I'm a pastor. And uh, he, so he, he begins to talk about, he said, man, have you heard of it? And I won't even say the name right, but it, it, it is an ism. Have you heard about this? And it was some like humanist philosophy. Honestly, it sounded sort of, sort of like Scientology. Have you heard about this blah, 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 ism? I was like, no, tell me about this. And, uh, and, and what he said was, like, not related to Christianity at all, but somehow he put me and this thing in the same category. So I listened. I listened as we're playing golf. So, yeah, man, this, this, this idea, it, it, it believes that, like, aliens came down and uh, in the primordial ooze of, of the earth, they genetically modified single-cell organisms so as to produce human life. And it explains why humans act the way they do because the aliens came down and they genetically modified the single-cell organisms. And, um, and I'm, I'm listening to this. And man, this, far, this guy is further out in left field than his golf ball is. And his golf ball was way out there. Nowhere near the fairway. Um, and I'm just listening. I was like, oh, that, that's pretty interesting. And then I asked him, it's like, do you, so do you believe this blah 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 ism i don't know man but i'm thinking about it i'm like really okay that's i mean it's pretty interesting i'm like well how i said how can i learn more about this and like well there's this website and this guy and he's got a book and blah 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 and then i said well you know the hope that i have is not connected to any aliens genetically modifying single cell organisms I just want to tell you that, that I'm going to stand up in front of a group of people tomorrow, and, and sort of what we do is, is we profess a hope in a God that raised Jesus up from the dead. And because Christ has been raised, we too can have hope. We can have the promise of eternal life. We can live a life of victory, and we can live a life of purpose. And I sort of gave him my elevator speech as to why I'm a Christian and why I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and, and in my mind, it sounded a whole lot better than genetically modified single-cell organisms that were changed by aliens. And I think maybe in his mind it did too. Because he said, oh, that's, that's very interesting. He said, I've never heard it put like that. And, and maybe he heard it put as condemnation before. Maybe he heard it put as, con as judgment before. But what I wanted this friend to know is that we have hope. We have hope in Christ. And the comfort that we've received in Christ, we can share with others. And finally, friends, I want us to think about this world of conflict that we live in. You don't need me to tell you that the world is broken and it's in conflict. You don't need me to tell you that people are fighting. But what you do need me to tell you is this, is that when God works in his peace into our lives, we are called to work it out by making peace 
in this world of conflict. What is the first thing that Jesus said after he was raised from the dead? He meets with the disciples. He breathes the Holy Spirit upon them in John chapter 20. And he says, peace I give you. Peace I give you. And we often think of peace as the absence of conflict. And you're going to go into a work situation and it's tense and people are stressed. And, 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 and for 30 minutes, you're going to get through this meeting and you're going to take a deep breath and you're going to say, thank God nobody fought today. Nobody had to yell at each other today. There was the absence of conflict. But that's not peace. Peace is when relationships are restored, when they are whole, when you can be vulnerable with people and have them not take advantage of that vulnerability. This is the wholeness and the shalom that God intends for us to live in. And so often we settle for the absence of conflict, and we call that peace. But what God is calling us to do is to, in a world of conflict, to, be, to make peace in the world. What Jesus said after he breathed peace upon the disciples is he said, As the Father has sent me to be an agent of peace in the world, I am sending you. I am sending you. So friend, how are you making peace in a world of conflict? the peace that God has worked in your life, how are you working it out in the world? I hesitate to tell you this story, but it's how I'm processing things. But I had a friend, and I, was, I happened to be on social media this week, and I had a friend who has a similar platform to the one that I have. And, and, and the thing about being in the position that I'm in is, is, is it, it's so important that we steward this platform well. It's given to us for a season. It's given to us by God. It's filled by God's grace. And I pray that I steward it well. And it's, it's only a limited amount of time that preachers have this opportunity to, to do what we do. And, and this colleague of mine posted something on social media that I felt like was outside of our shared values. It was derogatory. He's calling someone else a name. And it was connected to some issue that we're all very passionate about. But the, 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 the way this person went about it, I felt like was, was outside the bounds of, of who we're called to be. Because the way this was received on social media, as you might expect, was inflammatory. And it just made everyone more upset. It took something that we're already passionate about, tensions are already high about this, and it just poured gas on it. And so I reached out to this person. I did not reach out in the comment section. Followers of Jesus do not belong in the comment section. I think I can say that, like, unequivocally. Like, we don't belong in the comment section. We belong in that space where we share relationships with people. And I share a relationship with this person. We have a relationship where we can text each other, and we have texted before. And so I sent a text to this friend and said, hey, I read what you wrote, and I'm reaching out to you because I love you. And I feel like we together are better than this. And I feel like together we can be actively working to make peace in the world rather than stirring up conflict. And it opened a door for us to talk, and we begin to dialogue. 
And obviously, he and I had very different opinions about this thing, in addition to how he went about parsing it on social media. But it was an example, friends, of working out our salvation. And I give everyone in this congregation and everyone watching online, if you feel that I act in some way outside of our shared values as the people of God, please be the first person to text me. Please be the first person to hold me accountable. Because that's you working out your salvation, and that's me working out my salvation. This tension, we don't always get it right. But we need each other to get it right. And I pray that instead of just being satisfied with the absence of conflict, that we would actively be working to make peace and reconcile relationships. This is who the people of God are called to be. Amen? Amen. So this is a high calling to work out our salvation. But I want to remind you of, of everything that we've received by grace. I'm thinking of this passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, I've Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. And he says this, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Paul's just talking about how awesome it is that we've received grace upon top of grace on top of grace. But as I think about working out our salvation, friend, there is not one spiritual blessing that God has given us that is not intended to be worked out in the world. Let it sink in for a second. You're the recipients of grace. You receive grace with open hands. God has put blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing in your hand. Not one thing that God has put in your hand is for you to hold on to. It's for you to, it's for you to hold it with open hands and to freely, liberally, lavishly, courageously, sometimes subversively, Work it out in the world. God gives it to you by grace, and he calls you to work it out in the world. This is exactly how Paul finishes this text. He says, for it fulfills God's good purpose. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and in doing this, you fulfill the purpose of God in the world. This is what we're called to do. This is who we're called to be. So as you think about this tension in your life, as you think about what God has poured into your life, friend, what do you need to surrender today? I mean, what is it that you're holding on to? What is it in your life you're saying, no, God, I don't want to work this out. I want to hold on to this bitterness. No, God, I don't want to work this out. I want to hold on to this resentment. No, God, I don't want to share the blessings that you've poured into my life. I want to just hold on to them because working them out in the world is, a, is, is, is more commitment than I'm willing to give today. What is it that you're holding on to that you need to surrender to the Lordship of Christ and you need to say, okay, God, it's yours. Okay, God, we're going to work this out. I'm going to reconcile that relationship. I'm going to be a person of peace. I'm going to go and serve and live in the places you've called me to go and serve and live. I'm going to be faithful to what you've called me to do. See, this is our sanctification. 
This is our sanctification. And as we participate with God and as we work this out, it's not you just get your stamp and you go to heaven. It's you take a deep breath and you say, God has given me this moment to be his person, to be connected to his people. He's, he's given me this moment to understand how high and how deep and how broad is the love of God. And I get to be an agent of God's kingdom in the world. 